Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Chapter One of Rainbow Valley. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Karen Savage. Rainbow Valley by Lucy Maud Montgomery. The thoughts of youth are long, long thoughts. Longfellow. To the memory of Goldwyn Lapp, Robert Brooks, and Morley Shire, who made the supreme sacrifice that the happy valleys of their homeland might be kept sacred from the ravage of the invader. Chapter One Home Again. It was a clear apple green evening in May, and Four Winds Harbor was mirroring back the clouds of the golden west between its softly dark shores. The sea moaned eerily on the sandbar, sorrowful even in spring, but a sly jovial wind came piping down the Red Harbor Road along which Miss Cornelia's comfortable matronly figure was making its way towards the village of Glen St. Mary. Miss Cornelia was rightfully Mrs. Marshall Elliot, and had been Mrs. Marshall Elliot for thirteen years, but even yet more people referred to her as Miss Cornelia than as Mrs. Elliot. The old name was dear to her old friends. Only one of them contemptuously dropped it. Susan Baker, the gray and grim and faithful handmaiden of the Blythe family at Ingleside, never lost an opportunity of calling her Mrs. Marshall Elliot, with the most killing and pointed emphasis, as if to say, you want it to be Mrs., and Mrs. you shall be with a vengeance as far as I'm concerned. Miss Cornelia was going up to Ingleside to see Dr. and Mrs. Blythe, who were just home from Europe. They had been away for three months, having left in February to attend a famous medical congress in London, and certain things which Miss Cornelia was anxious to discuss had taken place in the Glen during their absence. For one thing, there was a new family in the manse. And such a family! Miss Cornelia shook her head over them several times as she walked briskly along. Susan Baker and the Anne Shirley of other days saw her coming as they sat on the big veranda at Ingleside, enjoying the charm of the cat's light, the sweetness of sleepy robins whistling among the twilit maples, and the dance of a gusty group of daffodils blowing against the old, mellow, red-brick wall of the lawn. 
Anne was sitting on the steps, her hands clasped over her knee, looking, in the kind dusk, as girlish as a mother of many has any right to be. And the beautiful gray-green eyes, gazing down the harbor road, were as full of unquenchable sparkle and dream as ever. Behind her, in the hammock, Rilla Blythe was curled up, a fat, roly-poly little creature of six years, the youngest of the Ingleside children. She had curly red hair and hazel eyes that were now buttoned up after the funny, wrinkled fashion in which Rilla always went to sleep. Shirley, the little brown boy, as he was known in the family who's who, was asleep in Susan's arms. He was brown-haired, brown-eyed, and brown-skinned, with very rosy cheeks, and he was Susan's especial love. After his birth, Anne had been very ill for a long time, and Susan mothered the baby with a passionate tenderness which none of the other children, dear as they were to her, had ever called out. Dr. Blythe had said that but for her he would never have lived. "'I gave him life just as much as you did, Mrs. Dr. dear,' Susan was wont to say. "'He is just as much my baby as he is yours.' And, indeed, it was always to Susan that Shirley ran to be kissed for bumps and rocked to sleep and protected from well-deserved spankings. Susan had conscientiously spanked all the other Blythe children when she thought they needed it for their soul's good, but she would not spank Shirley, nor allow his mother to do it. Once Dr. Blythe had spanked him, and Susan had been stormily indignant. "'That man would spank an angel, Mrs. Dr. dear, that he would.' she had declared bitterly, and she would not make the poor doctor a pie for weeks. She had taken Shirley with her to her brother's home, during his parents' absence, while all the other children had gone to Avonlea, and she had three blessed months of him all to herself. Nevertheless, Susan was very glad to find herself back at Ingleside, with all her darlings around her again. Ingleside was her world, and in it she reigned supreme. Even Anne seldom questioned her decisions, much to the disgust of Mrs. Rachel Lynde of Green Gables, who gloomily told Anne, whenever she visited Four Winds, that she was letting Susan get to be entirely too much of a boss and would live to rue it. "'Here is Cornelia Bryant coming up the harbour road, Mrs. Dr. dear,' said Susan. "'She will be coming to unload three months of gossip on us.' "'I hope so,' said Anne, hugging her knees. "'I'm starving for glance and merry gossip, Susan.' I hope Miss Cornelia can tell me everything that has happened while we've been away. Everything. Who has got born, or married, or drunk, who has died, or gone away, or come, or fought, or lost a cow, or found a bow. It's so delightful to be home again with all the dear Glen folks, and I want to know all about them. Why, I remember wondering as I walked through Westminster Abbey which of her two especial bows Millicent Drew would finally marry. Do you know, Susan, I have a dreadful suspicion that I love gossip. "'Well, of course, Mrs. Dr. dear,' admitted Susan. "'Every proper woman likes to hear the news. I am rather interested in Millicent Drew's case myself. I never had a beau, much less two, and I do not mind now, for being an old maid does not hurt you when you get used to it. Millicent's hair always looked to me as if she had swept it up with a broom, but the men do not seem to mind that. They see only her pretty, piquant, mocking little face, Susan. That may very well be, Mrs. Dr. dear. The good book says that favour is deceitful and beauty is vain, but I should not have minded finding that out for myself, if it had been so ordained. I have no doubt we will all be beautiful when we are angels, but what good will it do us then? Speaking of gossip, however, they do say that poor Mrs. Harrison Miller over harbour tried to hang herself last week. Oh, Susan! Calm yourself, Mrs. Dr. dear, she did not succeed. But I really do not blame her for trying, for her husband is a terrible man. 
But she was very foolish to think of hanging herself and leaving the way clear for him to marry some other woman. If I had been in her shoes, Mrs. Dr. dear, I would have gone to work to worry him so that he would try to hang himself instead of me. Not that I hold with people hanging themselves under any circumstances, Mrs. Dr. dear." "'What is the matter with Harrison Miller, anyway?' said Anne impatiently. "'He is always driving someone to extremes.' "'Well, some people call it religion and some call it cussedness, begging your pardon, Mrs. Dr. dear, for using such a word. It seems they cannot make out which it is in Harrison's case. There are days when he growls at everybody because he thinks he is foreordained to eternal punishment, and then there are days when he says he does not care and goes and gets drunk. My own opinion is that he is not sound in his intellect, for none of that branch of the Millers were. His grandfather went out of his mind. He thought he was surrounded by big black spiders. They crawled over him and floated in the air about him. I hope I shall never go insane, Mrs. Dr. dear, and I do not think I will, because it is not a habit of the Bakers. But if an all-wise providence should decree it, I hope it will not take the form of big black spiders, for I loathe the animals. As for Mrs. Miller, I do not know whether she really deserves pity or not. There are some who say she just married Harrison despite Richard Taylor, which seems to me a very peculiar reason for getting married. But then, of course, I am no judge of things matrimonial, Mrs. Dr. dear. And there is Cornelia Bryant at the gate, so I will put this blessed brown baby on his bed and get my knitting. End of chapter 1 Chapter 2 of Rainbow Valley by Lucy Maud Montgomery this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Karen Savage. Chapter 2. Sheer Gossip. "'Where are the other children?' asked Miss Cornelia when the first greetings, cordial on her side, rapturous on Anne's, and dignified on Susan's, were over. "'Shirley is in bed, and Jem and Walter and the twins are down in their beloved Rainbow Valley,' said Anne. They just came home this afternoon, you know, and they could hardly wait until supper was over before rushing down to the valley. They love it above every spot on earth. Even the maple grove doesn't rival it in their affections." "'I'm afraid they love it too well,' said Susan gloomily. Little Jem said once he would rather go to Rainbow Valley than to heaven when he died, and that was not a proper remark." "'I suppose they had a great time in Avonlea,' said Miss Cornelia. Enormous. Marilla does spoil them terribly. Jem, in particular, can do no wrong in her eyes." "'Miss Cuthbert must be an old lady now,' said Miss Cornelia, getting out her knitting, so that she could hold her own with Susan. Miss Cornelia held that the woman whose hands were employed always had the advantage over the woman whose hands were not. "'Marilla is eighty-five, said Anne with a sigh. Her hair is snow-white. But, strange to say, her eyesight is better than it was when she was sixty. Well, dearie, I'm real glad you're all back. It's been dreadful lonesome. But we haven't been dull in the Glen, believe me. There hasn't been such an exciting spring in my time as far as church matters go. We've got settled with a minister at last, Anne, dearie." "'The Reverend John Knox Meredith, Mrs. Dr. dear,' said Susan, resolved not to let Miss Cornelia tell all the news. "'Is he nice?' asked Anne interestedly. Miss Cornelia sighed, and Susan groaned. "'Yes, he's nice enough if that were all,' said the former. "'He is very nice, and very learned, and very spiritual. But, oh, Anne, dearie, he has no common sense.' "'How was it you called him, then?' "'Well, there's no doubt he is by far the best preacher we ever had in Glen St. Mary's Church,' said Miss Cornelia, veering a tack or two. 
I suppose it is because he is so moony and absent-minded that he never got a town call. His trial sermon was simply wonderful, believe me. Everyone went mad about it, and his looks. He is very comely, Mrs. Dr. dear, and when all is said and done I do like to see a well-looking man in the pulpit," broke in Susan, thinking it was time she asserted herself again. "'Besides,' said Miss Cornelia, "'we were anxious to get settled, and Mr. Meredith was the first candidate we were all agreed on. Somebody had some objection to all the others. There was some talk of calling Mr. Folsom. He was a good preacher, too, but somehow people didn't care for his appearance. He was too dark and sleek." "'He looked exactly like a great black tomcat, that he did, Mrs. Dr. dear,' said Susan. "'I never could abide such a man in the pulpit every Sunday.' "'Then Mr. Rogers came, and he was like a chip in porridge, neither harm nor good,' resumed Miss Cornelia. "'But if he had preached like Peter and Paul it would have profited him nothing, for that was the day old Caleb Ramsay's sheep strayed into church and gave a loud baa just as he announced his text. Everybody laughed, and poor Rogers had no chance after that. Some thought we ought to call Mr. Stewart because he was so well educated. He could read the New Testament in five languages. But I do not think he was any surer than other men of getting to heaven because of that," interjected Susan. "'Most of us didn't like his delivery,' said Miss Cornelia, ignoring Susan. He talked in grunts, so to speak. And Mr. Arnett couldn't preach at all. And he picked about the worst candidating text there is in the Bible—'Curse ye Meros.' Whenever he got stuck for an idea he would bang the Bible and shout very bitterly, "'Curse ye, Meroz!' Poor Meroz got thoroughly cursed that day, whoever he was, Mrs. Dr. dear," said Susan. "'The minister who is candidating can't be too careful about what text he chooses,' said Miss Cornelia solemnly. "'I believe Mr. Pearson would have got the call if he had picked a different text. But when he announced, "'I will lift my eyes to the hills,' he was done for. Everyone grinned, for everyone knew that those two hill girls from the harbour head have been setting their caps for every single minister who came to the Glen for the last fifteen years. And Mr. Newman had too large a family. "'He stayed with my brother-in-law, James Clough,' said Susan. "'How many children have you got?' I asked him. Nine boys and a sister for each of them,' he said. Eighteen, said I. "'Dear me, what a family!' And then he laughed and laughed but I do not know why, Mrs. Dr. dear, and I am certain that eighteen children would be too many for any man's." "'He had only ten children, Susan,' explained Miss Cornelia with contemptuous patience. "'And ten good children would not be much worse for the manse and the congregation than the four who are there now. Though I wouldn't say, Anne dearie, that they are so bad, either. I like them. Everybody likes them. It's impossible to help liking them. They would be real nice little souls if there were anyone to look after their manners and teach them what is right and proper. For instance, at school the teacher says they are model children. But at home they simply run wild." "'What about Mrs. Meredith?' asked Anne. "'There's no Mrs. Meredith. That is just the trouble. Mr. Meredith is a widower. His wife died four years ago. If we had known that I don't suppose we would have called him for a widower is even worse in a congregation than a single man. But he was heard to speak of his children and we all supposed there was a mother, too. And when they came there was nobody but old Aunt Martha, as they call her. She's a cousin of Mr. Meredith's mother, I believe, and he took her in to save her from the poorhouse. She is seventy-five years old, half-blind, and very deaf and very cranky. 
and a very poor cook, Mrs. Dr. dear." "'The worst possible manager for a manse,' said Miss Cornelia bitterly. Mr. Meredith won't get any other housekeeper because he says it would hurt Aunt Martha's feelings. And, dearie, believe me, the state of that manse is something terrible. Everything is thick with dust and nothing is ever in its place. And we had painted and papered it all so nice before they came." "'There are four children, you say?' asked Anne, beginning to mother them already in her heart. "'Yes. They run up just like the steps of a stair. Gerald's the oldest. He's twelve and they call him Jerry. He's a clever boy. Faith is eleven. She is a regular tomboy, but pretty as a picture, I must say. She looks like an angel, but she is a holy terror for mischief, Mrs. Dr. dear," said Susan solemnly. I was at the manse one night last week and Mrs. James Millison was there too. She had brought them up a dozen eggs and a little pail of milk—a very little pail, Mrs. Dr. dear. Faith took them and whisked down the cellar with them. Near the bottom of the stairs she caught her toe and fell the rest of the way—milk and eggs and all. You can imagine the result, Mrs. Dr. dear. But that child came up laughing. I don't know whether I'm myself or a custard pie," she said. And Mrs. James Millison was very angry. She said she would never take another thing to the manse if it was to be wasted and destroyed in that fashion. Maria Millison never heard herself taking things to the manse," sniffed Miss Cornelia. She just took them that night as an excuse for curiosity. But poor Faith is always getting into scrapes. She is so heedless and impulsive. Just like me. I'm going to like your Faith," said Anne decidedly. She is full of spunk, and I do like spunk, Mrs. Dr. dear," admitted Susan. There's something taking about her," conceded Miss Cornelia. You never see her but she's laughing, and somehow it always makes you want to laugh too. She can't even keep a straight face in church. Una is ten. She's a sweet little thing—not pretty, but sweet. And Thomas Carlyle is nine—they call him Carl—and he has a regular mania for collecting toads and bugs and frogs and bringing them into the house. I suppose he was responsible for the dead rat that was lying on a chair in the parlour the afternoon Mrs. Grant called. It gave her a turn," said Susan. And I do not wonder, for a man's parlours are no places for dead rats. To be sure, it may have been the cat who left it there. He is as full of the old Nick as he can be stuffed, Mrs. Dr. dear. A man's cat should at least look respectable, in my opinion, whatever he really is. But I never saw such a rakish-looking beast. And he walks along the ridgepole of the manse almost every evening at sunset, Mrs. Dr. dear, and waves his tail, and that is not becoming." "'The worst of it is they are never decently dressed,' sighed Miss Cornelia. And since the snow went they go to school barefooted. Now you know, Anne dearie, that isn't the right thing for man's children, especially when the Methodist minister's little girl always wears such nice buttoned boots. And I do wish they wouldn't play in the old Methodist graveyard." "'It's very tempting when it's right beside the manse,' said Anne. I've always thought graveyards must be delightful places to play in." "'Oh, no, you did not, Mrs. Dr. dear,' said loyal Susan, determined to protect Anne from herself. "'You have too much good sense and decorum.' Why did they ever build that manse beside the graveyard in the first place?" asked Anne. Their lawn is so small there's no place for them to play except in the graveyard. It was a mistake, admitted Miss Cornelia, but they got the lot cheap, and no other man's children ever thought of playing there. Mr. Meredith shouldn't allow it, but he has always got his nose buried in a book when he is home. He reads and reads or walks about in his study in a daydream. 
So far he hasn't forgotten to be in church on Sundays, but twice he has forgotten about the prayer meeting, and one of the elders had to go over to the manse and remind him. And he forgot about Fanny Cooper's wedding. They rang him up on the phone and then he rushed right over, just as he was, carpet slippers and all. One wouldn't mind if the Methodists didn't laugh so about it. But there's one comfort. They can't criticize his sermons. He wakes up when he's in the pulpit, believe me, and the Methodist minister can't preach at all, so they tell me. I have never heard him, thank goodness." Miss Cornelia's scorn of men had abated somewhat since her marriage, but her scorn of Methodists remained untinged of charity. Susan smiled slyly. They do say, Mrs. Marshall Elliott, that the Methodists and Presbyterians are talking of uniting," she said. Well, all I hope is that I'll be under the sod if it ever comes to pass," retorted Miss Cornelia. I shall never have truck or trade with Methodists, and Mr. Meredith will find that he'd better steer clear of them, too. He is entirely too sociable with them, believe me. Why, he went to the Jacob Drew Silver Wedding Supper and got into a nice scrape as a result. What was it? Mrs. Drew asked him to carve the roast goose, for Jacob Drew never did or could carve. Well, Mr. Meredith tackled it, and in the process he knocked it clean off the platter into Mrs. Reese's lap, who was sitting next to him. And he just said dreamily, Mrs. Reese, will you kindly return me that goose? Mrs. Reese returned it as meek as Moses, but she must have been furious, for she had on her new silk dress. The worst of it is, she was a Methodist. But I think that is better than if she was a Presbyterian," interjected Susan. If she had been a Presbyterian she would most likely have left the church, and we cannot afford to lose our members. And Mrs. Reese is not liked in her own church because she gives herself such great airs, so that the Methodists would be rather pleased that Mr. Meredith spoiled her dress. The point is he made himself ridiculous, and I, for one, do not like to see my minister made ridiculous in the eyes of the Methodists said Miss Cornelia stiffly. If he had had a wife it would not have happened. I do not see if he had a dozen wives how they could have prevented Mrs. Drew from using up her old tough gander on the wedding feast," said Susan stubbornly. They say that was her husband's doing," said Miss Cornelia. Jacob Drew is a conceited, stingy, domineering creature. And they do say he and his wife detest each other which does not seem to me the proper way for married folks to get along. But then, of course, I have had no experience along that line," said Susan, tossing her head, and I am not one to blame everything on the men. Mrs. Drew is mean enough herself. They say that the only thing she was ever known to give away was a crock of butter made out of cream a rat had fell into. She contributed it to a church social. Nobody found out about the rat until afterwards. Fortunately, all the people the Merediths have offended, so far, are Methodists," said Miss Cornelia. That Jerry went to the Methodist prayer-meeting one night about a fortnight ago and sat beside old William Marsh, who got up as usual and testified with fearful groans. "'Do you feel any better now?' whispered Jerry when William sat down. Poor Jerry meant to be sympathetic, but Mr. Marsh thought he was impertinent and is furious at him. Of course Jerry had no business to be in a Methodist prayer-meeting at all. But they go where they like." "'I hope they will not offend Mrs. Alec Davis of the Harbour Head,' said Susan. She is a very touchy woman, I understand. But she is very well off and pays the most of any one to the salary. I have heard that she says the Merediths are the worst brought-up children she ever saw." 
Every word you say convinces me more and more that the Merediths belong to the race that knows Joseph," said Mistress Anne decidedly. "'When all is said and done, they do,' admitted Miss Cornelia, "'and that balances everything. Anyway, we've got them now and we must just do the best we can by them and stick up for them to the Methodists. Well, I suppose I must be getting down harbour. Marshall will soon be home. He went over harbour today, and wanting his supper, mad-like. I'm sorry I haven't seen the other children. And where is the doctor?" "'Up at the harbour head. We've only been home three days, and in that time he has spent three hours in his own bed and eaten two meals in his own house." Well, everybody who had been sick for the last six weeks had been waiting for him to come home, and I don't blame them. When that over-harbour doctor married the undertaker's daughter at Lowbridge, people felt suspicious of him. It didn't look well. You and the doctor must come down soon and tell us all about your trip. I suppose you've had a splendid time." We had, agreed Anne. It was the fulfillment of years of dreams. The old world is very lovely and very wonderful. But we have come back very well satisfied with our own land. Canada is the finest country in the world, Miss Cornelia." Nobody ever doubted that," said Miss Cornelia complacently. And old P.E.I. is the loveliest province in it, and Four Winds the loveliest spot in P.E.I., laughed Anne, looking adoringly out over the sunset splendor of glen and harbor and gulf. She waved her hand at it. I saw nothing more beautiful than that in Europe, Miss Cornelia. Must you go? The children will be sorry to have missed you. They must come and see me soon. Tell them the doughnut jar is always full. Oh, at supper they were planning a descent on you. They'll go soon. But they must settle down to school again now. And the twins are going to take music lessons." "'Not from the Methodist minister's wife, I hope,' said Miss Cornelia anxiously. "'No, from Rosemary West. I was up last evening to arrange it with her. What a pretty girl she is. Rosemary holds her own well. She isn't as young as she once was. I thought her very charming. I've never had any real acquaintance with her, you know. Their house is so out of the way, and I've seldom ever seen her except at church." "'People have always liked Rosemary West, though they don't understand her,' said Miss Cornelia, quite unconscious of the high tribute she was paying to Rosemary's charm. Ellen has always kept her down, so to speak. She has tyrannized over her, and yet she has always indulged her in a good many ways. Rosemary was engaged once, you know, to young Martin Crawford. His ship was wrecked in the Magdalens, and all the crew were drowned. Rosemary was just a child, only seventeen. But she was never the same afterwards. She and Ellen have stayed very close at home since their mother's death. They don't often get to their own church at Lowbridge, and I understand Ellen doesn't approve of going too often to a Presbyterian church. To the Methodist she never goes, I'll say that much for her. That family of Wests have always been strong Episcopalians. Rosemary and Ellen are pretty well off. Rosemary doesn't really need to give music lessons. She does it because she likes to. They are distantly related to Leslie, you know. Are the Fords coming to the harbour this summer?" No. They're going on a trip to Japan, and will probably be away for a year. Owen's new novel is to have a Japanese setting. This will be the first summer that the dear old house of dreams will be empty since we left it. I should think Owen Ford might find enough to write about in Canada without dragging his wife and his innocent children off to a heathen country like Japan," grumbled Miss Cornelia. The Life Book was the best book he's ever written and he got the material for that right here in Four Winds. Captain Jim gave him most of that, you know, and he collected it all over the world. But Owen's books are all delightful, I think. Oh, they're well enough as far as they go. 
I make it a point to read every one he writes, though I've always held, Anne dearie, that reading novels is a sinful waste of time. I shall write and tell him my opinion of this Japanese business, believe me. Does he want Kenneth and Persis to be converted into pagans?" With which unanswerable conundrum Miss Cornelia took her departure. Susan proceeded to put Rilla in bed, and Anne sat on the veranda steps under the early stars and dreamed her incorrigible dreams, and learned all over again for the hundredth happy time what a moonrise splendor and sheen could be on Four Winds Harbor. End of chapter 2 Chapter 3 of Rainbow Valley by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Karen Savage. Chapter 3 The Ingleside Children. In daytime, the Blythe children liked very well to play in the rich, soft greens and glooms of the big maple grove between Ingleside and Glen St. Mary Pond. But for evening revels, there was no place like the little valley behind the maple grove. It was a fairy realm of romance to them. Once, looking from the attic windows of Ingleside through the mist and aftermath of a summer thunderstorm, they had seen the beloved spot arched by a glorious rainbow, one end of which seemed to dip straight down to where a corner of the pond ran up into the lower end of the valley. "'Let us call it Rainbow Valley,' said Walter delightedly. And Rainbow Valley thenceforth it was. Outside of Rainbow Valley the wind might be rollicking and boisterous. Here it always went gently. Little, winding fairy paths ran here and there over spruce roots cushioned with moss. Wild cherry trees, that in blossom time would be misty white, were scattered all over the valley, mingling with the dark spruces. A little brook with amber waters ran through it from the Glen village. The houses of the village were comfortably far away. Only at the upper end of the valley was a little tumble-down deserted cottage, referred to as the Old Bailey House. It had not been occupied for many years, but a grass-grown dyke surrounded it, and inside was an ancient garden where the Ingleside children could find violets and daisies and June lilies still blooming in season. For the rest, the garden was overgrown with caraway that swayed and foamed in the moonshine of summer eves like seas of silver. To the south lay the pond, and beyond it the ripened distance lost itself in purple woods, save where on a high hill a solitary old grey homestead looked down on glen and harbour. There was a certain wild woodsiness and solitude about Rainbow Valley, in spite of its nearness to the village, which endeared it to the children of Ingleside. The valley was full of dear, friendly hollows, and the largest of these was their favourite stamping-ground. Here they were assembled on this particular evening. There was a grove of young spruces in this hollow, with a tiny grassy glade in its heart, opening on the bank of the brook. By the brook grew a silver birch-tree, a young, incredibly straight thing, which Walter had named the White Lady. In this glade, too, were the tree-lovers, as Walter called a spruce and maple, which grew so closely together that their boughs were inextricably intertwined. Jem had hung an old string of sleigh-bells given him by the Glen blacksmith on the tree-lovers, and every visitant breeze called out sudden fairy tinkles from it. "'How nice it is to be back,' said Nan. After all, none of the Avonlea places are quite as nice as Rainbow Valley. But they were very fond of the Avonlea places for all that. 
A visit to Green Gables was always considered a great treat. Aunt Marilla was very good to them, and so was Mrs. Rachel Lynde, who was spending the leisure of her old age in knitting cotton-warp quilts against the day when Anne's daughter should need a setting out. There were jolly playmates there, too—Uncle Davy's children and Aunt Diana's children. They knew all the spots their mother had loved so well in her girlhood at Old Green Gables—the long lover's lane that was pink-hedged in wild rose time, the always neat yard with its willows and poplars, the dryad's bubble, lucent and lovely as of yore, the lake of shining waters and Willowmere. The twins had their mother's old porch gable room, and Aunt Marilla used to come in at night, when she thought they were asleep, to gloat over them. But they all knew she loved Jem the best. Jem was at present busily occupied in frying a mess of small trout which he had just caught in the pond. His stove consisted of a circle of red stones, with a fire kindled in it, and his culinary utensils were an old tin can, hammered out flat, and a fork with only one tine left. Nevertheless, ripping good meals had before now been thus prepared. Jem was the child of the House of Dreams. All the others had been born at Ingleside. He had curly red hair like his mother's and frank hazel eyes like his father's. He had his mother's fine nose and his father's steady, humorous mouth. And he was the only one of the family who had ears nice enough to please Susan. But he had a standing feud with Susan because she would not give up calling him Little Jem. It was outrageous, thought thirteen-year-old Jem. Mother had more sense. "'I'm not little any more, Mother,' he had cried indignantly on his eighth birthday. "'I'm awful big!' Mother had sighed and laughed and sighed again, and she never called him Little Jem again—in his hearing, at least. He was, and always had been, a sturdy, reliable little chap. He never broke a promise. He was not a great talker—his teachers did not think him brilliant—but he was a good, all-around student. He never took things on faith. He always liked to investigate the truth of a statement for himself. Once Susan had told him that if he touched his tongue to a frosty latch all the skin would tear off it. Jem had promptly done it just to see if it was so. He found it was so, at the cost of a very sore tongue for several days. But Jem did not grudge suffering in the interests of science. By constant experiment and observation he learned a great deal, and his brothers and sisters thought his extensive knowledge of their little world quite wonderful. Jem always knew where the first and ripest berries grew, where the first pale violets shyly awakened from their winter's sleep, and how many blue eggs were in a given robin's nest in the maple grove. He could tell fortunes from daisy petals, and suck honey from red clovers, and grub up all sorts of edible roots on the banks of the pond, while Susan went in daily fear that they would all be poisoned. He knew where the finest spruce-gum was to be found, in pale amber knots on the lichened bark. He knew where the nuts grew thickest in the beech-woods around the harbour head, and where the best trouting-places up the brooks were. He could mimic the call of any wild bird or beast in four winds, and he knew the haunt of every wild flower from spring to autumn. Walter Blythe was sitting under the white lady, with a volume of poems lying beside him, but he was not reading. He was gazing now at the emerald-misted willows by the pond, and now at a flock of clouds, like little silver sheep herded by the wind, that were drifting over Rainbow Valley, with rapture in his wide, splendid eyes. 
Walter's eyes were very wonderful. All the joy and sorrow and laughter and loyalty and aspiration of many generations lying under the sod looked out of their dark gray depths. Walter was a hop out of kin, as far as looks went. He did not resemble any known relative. He was quite the handsomest of the Ingleside children, with straight black hair and finely modelled features. But he had all his mother's vivid imagination and passionate love of beauty. Frost of winter, invitation of spring, dream of summer, and glamour of autumn all meant much to Walter. In school, where Jem was a chieftain, Walter was not thought highly of. He was supposed to be girly and milksoppish because he never fought and seldom joined in the school sports, preferring to herd by himself in out-of-the-way corners and read books, especially poetry books. Walter loved the poets and pored over their pages from the time he could first read. Their music was woven into his growing soul—the music of the immortals. Walter cherished the ambition to be a poet himself some day. The thing could be done. A certain Uncle Paul, so-called out of courtesy, who lived now in that mysterious realm called the States, was Walter's model. Uncle Paul had once been a little schoolboy in Avonlea, and now his poetry was read everywhere. But the Glen schoolboys did not know of Walter's dreams, and would not have been greatly impressed if they had. In spite of his lack of physical prowess, however, he commanded a certain unwilling respect because of his power of talking book-talk. Nobody in Glen St. Mary's school could talk like him. He sounded like a preacher, one boy said, and for this reason he was generally left alone and not persecuted, as most boys were who were suspected of disliking or fearing fisticuffs. The ten-year-old Ingleside twins violated twin tradition by not looking in the least alike. Anne, who was always called Nan, was very pretty, with velvety nut-brown eyes and silky nut-brown hair. She was a very blithe and dainty little maiden, blithe by name and blithe by nature, one of her teachers had said. Her complexion was quite faultless, much to her mother's satisfaction. "'I'm so glad to have one daughter who can wear pink,' Mrs. Blythe was wont to say jubilantly. Diana Blythe, known as Di, was very like her mother, with grey-green eyes that always shone with a peculiar luster and brilliancy in the dusk, and red hair. Perhaps this was why she was her father's favourite. She and Walter were especial chums. Di was the only one to whom he would ever read the verses he wrote himself, the only one who knew that he was secretly hard at work on an epic, strikingly resembling Marmion in some things, if not in others. She kept all his secrets, even from Nan, and told him all hers. "'Won't you soon have those fish ready, Jem?' said Nan, sniffing with her dainty nose. "'The smell makes me awfully hungry.' "'They're nearly ready,' said Jem, giving one a dexterous turn. "'Get out the bread and the plates, girls. Walter, wake up!' "'How the air shines to-night,' said Walter dreamily. Not that he despised fried trout, either, by any means. But with Walter food for the soul always took first place. The flower angel has been walking over the world to-day, calling to the flowers. I can see his blue wings on that hill by the woods." "'Any angel's wings I ever saw were white,' said Nan. The flower angels aren't. They're a pale, misty blue, just like the haze in the valley. Oh, how I wish I could fly! It must be glorious." "'One does fly in dreams sometimes,' said Di. 
I never dream that I'm flying exactly," said Walter. But I often dream that I just rise up from the ground and float over the fences in the trees. It's delightful, and I always think, this isn't a dream, like it's always been before. This is real. And then I wake up after all and it's heartbreaking. Hurry up, Nan," ordered Jem. Nan had produced the banquet board—a board literally as well as figuratively—from which many a feast, seasoned as no viands were elsewhere, had been eaten in Rainbow Valley. It was converted into a table by propping it on two large mossy stones. Newspapers served as tablecloth, and broken plates and handleless cups from Susan's discard furnished the dishes. From a tin box secreted at the root of a spruce tree, Nan brought forth bread and salt. The brook gave Adam's ale of unsurpassed crystal. For the rest, there was a certain sauce, compounded of fresh air and appetite of youth, which gave to everything a divine flavor. To sit in Rainbow Valley, steeped in a twilight half-gold, half-amethyst, rife with the odors of balsam fir and woodsy growing things in their springtime prime, with the pale stars of wild strawberry blossoms all around you, and with the sough of the wind and tinkle of bells in the shaking treetops, and eat fried trout and dry bread, was something which the mighty of earth might have envied them. "'Sit in,' invited Nan, as Jem placed his sizzling tin platter of trout on the table. "'It's your turn to say grace, Jem.' "'I've done my part frying the trout,' protested Jem, who hated saying grace. Let Walter say it. He likes saying grace and cut it short, too, Walt. I'm starving." But Walter said no grace, short or long, just then. An interruption occurred. "'Who's coming down from the manse hill?' said Di. End of chapter 3 Chapter 4 of Rainbow Valley by Lucy Maud Montgomery This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Karen Savage. Chapter 4 the manse children. Aunt Martha might be, and was, a very poor housekeeper. The Reverend John Knox Meredith might be, and was, a very absent-minded, indulgent man. But it could not be denied that there was something very homelike and lovable about the Glen St. Mary manse, in spite of its untidiness. Even the critical housewives of the Glen felt it, and were unconsciously mellowed in judgment because of it. Perhaps its charm was in part due to accidental circumstances—the luxuriant vines clustering over its gray, clabbered walls, the friendly acacias and balm of gileads that crowded about it with the freedom of old acquaintance, and the beautiful views of harbor and sand-dunes from its front windows. But these things had been there in the reign of Mr. Meredith's predecessor, when the manse had been the primmest, neatest, and dreariest house in the Glen. So much of the credit must be given to the personality of its new inmates. There was an atmosphere of laughter and comradeship about it. The doors were always open, and inner and outer worlds joined hands. Love was the only law in Glen St. Mary Manse. The people of his congregation said that Mr. Meredith spoiled his children. Very likely he did. It is certain that he could not bear to scold them. They have no mother," he used to say to himself with a sigh, when some unusually glaring peccadillo forced itself upon his notice. But he did not know half of their goings-on. He belonged to the sect of dreamers. 
The windows of his study looked out on the graveyard, but as he paced up and down the room, reflecting deeply on the immortality of the soul, he was quite unaware that Jerry and Carl were playing leapfrog hilariously over the flat stones in that abode of dead Methodists. Mr. Meredith had occasional acute realizations that his children were not so well looked after, physically or morally, as they had been before his wife died and he had always a dim subconsciousness that house and meals were very different under Aunt Martha's management from what they had been under Cecilia's. For the rest he lived in a world of books and abstractions, and therefore, although his clothes were seldom brushed, and although the Glen housewives concluded from the ivory-like pallor of his clear-cut features and slender hands that he never got enough to eat, he was not an unhappy man. If ever a graveyard could be called a cheerful place, the old Methodist graveyard at Glen St. Mary might be so called. The new graveyard, at the other side of the Methodist church, was a neat and proper and doleful spot, but the old one had been left so long to nature's kindly and gracious ministries that it had become very pleasant. It was surrounded on three sides by a dyke of stones and sod, topped by a grey and uncertain paling. Outside the dyke grew a row of tall fir-trees, with thick balsamic boughs. The dyke, which had been built by the first settlers of the glen, was old enough to be beautiful, with mosses and green things growing out of its crevices, violets purpling at its base in the early spring days, and asters and goldenrod making an autumnal glory in its corners. Little ferns clustered companionably between its stones, and here and there a big bracken grew. On the eastern side there was neither fence nor dyke. The graveyard there straggled off into young fir plantation, ever pushing nearer to the graves and deepening eastward into a thick wood. The air was always full of the harp-like voices of the sea and the music of grey old trees, and in the spring mornings the choruses of birds in the elms around the two churches sang of life and not of death. The Meredith children loved the old graveyard. Blue-eyed ivy, garden spruce, and mint ran riot over the sunken graves. Blueberry bushes grew lavishly in the sandy corner next to the firwood. The varying fashions of tombstones for three generations were to be found there, from the flat, oblong red sandstone slabs of old settlers, down through the days of weeping willows and clasped hands, to the latest monstrosities of tall monuments and draped urns. One of the latter, the biggest and ugliest in the graveyard, was sacred to the memory of a certain Alec Davis, who had been born a Methodist but had taken to himself a Presbyterian bride of the Douglas clan. She had made him turn Presbyterian and kept him towing the Presbyterian mark all his life, but when he died she did not dare to doom him to a lonely grave in the Presbyterian graveyard over harbour. His people were all buried in the Methodist cemetery so Alec Davis went back to his own in death, and his widow consoled herself by erecting a monument which cost more than any of the Methodists could afford. The Meredith children hated it, without just knowing why, but they loved the old flat bench-like stones with the tall grasses growing rankly about them. They made jolly seats for one thing. They were all sitting on one now. Jerry, tired of leapfrog, was playing on a jew's harp. Carl was lovingly poring over a strange beetle he had found, Una was trying to make a doll's dress, 
and Faith, leaning back on her slender brown wrists, was swinging her bare feet in lively time to the Jew's harp. Jerry had his father's black hair and large black eyes, but in him the latter were flashing instead of dreamy. Faith, who came next to him, wore her beauty like a rose, careless and glowing. She had golden-brown eyes, golden-brown curls, and crimson cheeks. She laughed too much to please her father's congregation, and had shocked old Mrs. Taylor, the disconsolate spouse of several departed husbands, by saucily declaring—in the church porch at that—'The world isn't a veil of tears, Mrs. Taylor. It's a world of laughter.' Little dreamy Una was not given to laughter. Her braids of straight, dead-black hair betrayed no lawless kinks, and her almond-shaped dark blue eyes had something wistful and sorrowful in them. Her mouth had a trick of falling open over her tiny white teeth, and a shy meditative smile occasionally crept over her small face. She was much more sensitive to public opinion than Faith, and had an uneasy consciousness that there was something askew in their way of living. She longed to put it right, but did not know how. Now and then she dusted the furniture, but it was so seldom she could find the duster because it was never in the same place twice. And when the clothes-brush was to be found she tried to brush her father's best suit on Saturdays, and once sewed on a missing button with coarse white thread. When Mr. Meredith went to church next day every female eye saw that button, and the peace of the ladies' aid was upset for weeks. Carl had the clear, bright, dark-blue eyes, fearless and direct, of his dead mother, and her brown hair with its glints of gold. He knew the secrets of bugs, and had a sort of freemasonry with bees and beetles. Una never liked to sit near him because she never knew what uncanny creature might be secreted about him. Jerry refused to sleep with him because Carl had once taken a young garter-snake to bed with him. So Carl slept in his old cot, which was so short that he could never stretch out, and had strange bedfellows. Perhaps it was just as well that Aunt Martha was half-blind when she made that bed. Altogether they were a jolly, lovable little crew, and Cecilia Meredith's heart must have ached bitterly when she faced the knowledge that she must leave them. "'Where would you like to be buried if you were a Methodist?' asked Faith cheerfully. This opened up an interesting field of speculation. There isn't much choice. The place is full," said Jerry. I'd like that corner near the road, I guess. I could hear the teams going past and the people talking. I'd like that little hollow under the weeping birch," said Una. That birch is such a place for birds and they sing like mad in the mornings. I'd take the porter lot, where there's so many children buried. I like lots of company," said Faith. Carl, where'd you? I'd rather not be buried at all," said Carl. But if I had to be I'd like the ant-bed. Ants are awfully interesting." "'How very good all the people who are buried here must have been,' said Una, who had been reading the laudatory old epitaphs. There doesn't seem to be a single bad person in the whole graveyard. Methodists must be better than Presbyterians after all." "'Maybe the Methodists bury their bad people just like they do cats,' suggested Carl. Maybe they don't bother bringing them to the graveyard at all. "'Nonsense,' said Faith. "'The people that are buried here weren't any better than any other folks, Una. But when anyone is dead you mustn't say anything of him but good, or he'll come back and haunt you. Aunt Martha told me that. I asked Father if it was true, and he just looked through me and muttered, "'True? True? What is truth? What is truth, O jesting pilot?' I concluded from that that it must be true. 
I wonder if Mr. Alec Davis would come back and haunt me if I threw a stone at the urn on top of his tombstone," said Jerry. "'Mrs. Davis would,' giggled Faith. She just watches us in church like a cat watching mice. Last Sunday I made a face at her nephew and he made one back at me and you should have seen her glare. I'll bet she boxed his ears when they got out. Mrs. Marshall Elliott told me we mustn't offend her on any account or I'd have made a face at her, too. They say Jem Blythe stuck his tongue out at her once and she would never have his father again even when her husband was dying," said Jerry. I wonder what the Blythe gang will be like. I like their looks," said Faith. The man's children had been at the station that afternoon when the Blythe small fry had arrived. I like Jem's looks especially. They say in school that Walter's a sissy," said Jerry. I don't believe it," said Una, who had thought Walter very handsome. Well, he writes poetry anyhow. He won the prize the teacher offered last year for writing a poem Bertie Shakespeare Drew told me. Bertie's mother thought he should have got the prize because of his name, but Bertie said he couldn't write poetry to save his soul, name or no name. I suppose we'll get acquainted with them as soon as they begin going to school," mused Faith. I hope the girls are nice. I don't like most of the girls around here. Even the nice ones are pokey. But the Blythe twins look jolly. I thought twins always looked alike, but they don't. I think the red-haired one is the nicest." "'I like their mother's looks,' said Una with a little sigh. Una envied all children their mothers. She had been only six when her mother died, but she had some very precious memories, treasured in her soul like jewels, of twilight cuddlings and morning frolics, of loving eyes, a tender voice, and the sweetest, gayest laugh. "'They say she isn't like other people,' said Jerry. "'Mrs. Elliot says that is because she never really grew up,' said Faith. "'She's taller than Mrs. Elliot.' "'Yes, yes. But it is inside. Mrs. Elliot says Mrs. Blythe just stayed a little girl inside.' "'What do I smell?' interrupted Carl, sniffing. They all smelled it now. A most delectable odor came floating up on the still evening air from the direction of the little woodsy dell below the manse hill. "'That makes me hungry,' said Jerry. "'We only had bread and molasses for supper and cold ditto for dinner,' said Una plaintively. Aunt Martha's habit was to boil a large slab of mutton early in the week and serve it up every day, cold and greasy, as long as it lasted. To this Faith, in a moment of inspiration, had given the name of Ditto, and by this it was invariably known at the manse. "'Let's go and see where the smell is coming from,' said Jerry. They all sprang up, frolicked over the lawn with the abandon of young puppies, climbed a fence, and tore down the mossy slope, guided by the savory lure that ever grew stronger. A few minutes later they arrived breathlessly in the sanctum sanctorum of Rainbow Valley, where the Blythe children were just about to give thanks and eat. They halted shyly. Una wished they had not been so precipitate. But Di Blythe was equal to that and any occasion. She stepped forward with a comrade's smile. I guess I know who you are," she said. You belong to the manse, don't you?" Faith nodded, her face creased by dimples. We smelled your trout cooking and wondered what it was. You must sit down and help us eat them," said Di. Maybe you haven't got any more than you want yourselves," said Jerry, looking hungrily at the tin platter. We've heaps—three apiece," said Jem. Sit down. No more ceremony was necessary. Down they all sat on mossy stones. Merry was that feast and long. Nan and Di would probably have died of horror had they known what Faith and Una knew perfectly well—that Carl had two young mice in his jacket pocket. But they never knew it, so it never hurt them. 
Where can folks get better acquainted than over a meal table? When the last trout had vanished, the manse children and the Ingleside children were sworn friends and allies. They had always known each other and always would. The race of Joseph recognized its own. They poured out the history of their little pasts. The manse children heard of Avonlea and Green Gables, of Rainbow Valley traditions, and of the little house by the harbor shore where Jem had been born. The Ingleside children heard of Maywater, where the Merediths had lived before coming to the Glen, of Una's beloved one-eyed doll and Faith's pet rooster. Faith was inclined to resent the fact that people laughed at her for petting a rooster. She liked the Blythes because they accepted it without question. "'A handsome rooster like Adam is just as nice a pet as a dog or cat, I think,' she said. "'If he was a canary nobody would wonder. And I brought him up from a little wee yellow chicken. Mrs. Johnson at Maywater gave him to me. A weasel had killed all his brothers and sisters. I called him after her husband. I never liked dolls or cats. Cats are too sneaky and dolls are dead." "'Who lives in that house away up there?' asked Jerry. "'The Miss Wests, Rosemary and Ellen,' answered Nan. Di and I are going to take music lessons from Miss Rosemary this summer." Una gazed at the lucky twins with eyes whose longing was too gentle for envy. Oh, if only she could have music lessons! It was one of the dreams of her little hidden life. But nobody ever thought of such a thing. "'Miss Rosemary is so sweet, and she always dresses so pretty,' said Di. Her hair is just the color of new molasses taffy," she added wistfully, for Di, like her mother before her, was not resigned to her own ruddy tresses. "'I like Miss Ellen, too,' said Nan. She always used to give me candies when she came to church. But Di is afraid of her." "'Her brows are so black, and she has such a great deep voice,' said Di. Oh, how scared of her Kenneth Ford used to be when he was little! Mother says the first Sunday Mrs. Ford brought him to church Miss Ellen happened to be there sitting right behind them, and the minute Kenneth saw her he just screamed and screamed until Mrs. Ford had to carry him out." "'Who is Mrs. Ford?' asked Una wonderingly. "'Oh, the Fords don't live here. They only come here in the summer. And they're not coming this summer. They live in that little house way, way down on the harbor shore where father and mother used to live. I wish you could see Persis Ford. She's just like a picture." "'I've heard of Mrs. Ford,' broke in Faith. Bertie Shakespeare Drew told me about her. She was married fourteen years to a dead man and then he came to life." "'Nonsense,' said Nan. That isn't the way it goes at all. Bertie Shakespeare can never get anything straight. I know the whole story and I'll tell it to you sometime. But not now, for it's too long and it's time for us to go home. Mother doesn't like us to be out late these damp evenings." Nobody cared whether the manse children were out in the damp or not. Aunt Martha was already in bed and the minister was still too deeply lost in speculations concerning the immortality of the soul to remember the mortality of the body. But they went home, too, with visions of good times coming in their heads. "'I think Rainbow Valley is even nicer than the graveyard,' said Una. And I just love those dear Blythes. It's so nice when you can love people because so often you can't. Father said in his sermon last Sunday that we should love everybody. But how can we? How could we love Mrs. Alec Davis?" "'Oh, Father only said that in the pulpit,' said Faith airily. He has more sense than to really think it outside." The Blythe children went up to Ingleside, except Jem, who slipped away for a few moments on a solitary expedition to a remote corner of Rainbow Valley. Mayflowers grew there, and Jem never forgot to take his mother a bouquet as long as they lasted. End of chapter 4
Chapter Five of Rainbow Valley by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Karen Savage. Chapter Five: The Advent of Mary Vance. This is just the sort of day you feel as if things might happen," said Faith, responsive to the lure of crystal air and blue hills. She hugged herself with delight and danced a hornpipe on old Hezekiah Pollock's bench tombstone, much to the horror of two ancient maidens who happened to be driving past just as Faith hopped on one foot around the stone, waving the other and her arms in the air. "'And that,' groaned one ancient maiden, "'is our minister's daughter.' "'What else would you expect of a widower's family?' groaned the other ancient maiden. And then they both shook their heads. It was early on Saturday morning, and the Merediths were out in the dew-drenched world with a delightful consciousness of the holiday. They had never had anything to do on a holiday. Even Nan and Di Blythe had certain household tasks for Saturday mornings, but the daughters of the manse were free to roam from blushing morn to dewy eve if it so pleased them. It did please Faith, but Una felt a secret bitter humiliation because they never learned to do anything. The other girls in her class at school could cook and sew and knit. She was only a little ignoramus. Jerry suggested that they go exploring, so they went lingeringly through the fir grove, picking up Carl on the way who was on his knees in the dripping grass, studying his darling ants. Beyond the grove they came out in Mr. Taylor's pasture-field, sprinkled over with the white ghosts of dandelions. In a remote corner was an old tumble-down barn where Mr. Taylor sometimes stored his surplus hay crop, but which was never used for any other purpose. Thither the Meredith children trooped and prowled about the ground floor for several minutes. "'What was that?' whispered Una suddenly. They all listened. There was a faint but distinct rustle in the hayloft above. The Merediths looked at each other. "'There's something up there,' breathed Faith. "'I'm going to see what it is.' said Jerry resolutely. "'Oh, don't!' begged Una, catching his arm. "'I'm going.' "'We'll all go, too, then,' said Faith. The whole four climbed the shaky ladder, Jerry and Faith quite dauntless, Una pale from fright, and Carl rather absent-mindedly, speculating on the possibility of finding a bat up in the loft. He longed to see a bat in daylight. When they stepped off the ladder they saw what had made the rustle, and the sight struck them dumb for a few moments. In a little nest in the hay a girl was curled up, looking as if she had just wakened from sleep. When she saw them she stood up rather shakily, as it seemed, and in the bright sunlight that streamed through the cobwebbed window behind her they saw that her thin, sunburned face was very pale under its tan. She had two braids of lank, thick, tow-colored hair and very odd eyes—white eyes, the man's children thought, as she stared at them half defiantly, half piteously. They were really of so pale a blue that they did seem almost white, especially when contrasted with the narrow black ring that circled the iris. She was barefooted and bareheaded, and was clad in a faded, ragged old plaid dress much too short and tight for her. As for years, she might have been almost any age, judging from her wizened little face, but her height seemed to be somewhere in the neighborhood of twelve. "'Who are you?' asked Jerry. The girl looked about her as if seeking a way of escape. Then she seemed to give in with a little shiver of despair. "'I'm Mary Vance,' she said. "'Where'd you come from?' pursued Jerry. Mary, instead of replying, suddenly sat, or fell, down on the hay and began to cry. Instantly Faith had flung herself down beside her and put her arm around the thin, shaking shoulders. 
"'You stop bothering her,' she commanded Jerry. Then she hugged the waif. "'Don't cry, dear. Just tell us what's the matter. We are friends.' "'I'm so—so hungry,' wailed Mary. "'I hain't had a thing to eat since Thursday morning, except a little water from the brook out there.' The man's children gazed at each other in horror. Faith sprang up. "'You come right up to the manse and get something to eat before you say another word.' Mary shrank. "'Oh, I can't. What will your pa and ma say? Besides, they'd send me back. We've no mother, and father won't bother about you. Neither will Aunt Martha. Come, I say.' Faith stamped her foot impatiently. Was this queer girl going to insist on starving to death almost at their very door? Mary yielded. She was so weak that she could hardly climb down the ladder, but somehow they got her down and over the field and into the manse kitchen. Aunt Martha, muddling through her Saturday cooking, took no notice of her. Faith and Una flew to the pantry and ransacked it for such eatables as it contained—some ditto, bread, butter, milk, and a doubtful pie. Mary Vance attacked the food ravenously and uncritically, while the man's children stood around and watched her. Jerry noticed that she had a pretty mouth and very nice, even white teeth. Faith decided, with secret horror, that Mary had not one stitch on her except that ragged, faded dress. Una was full of pure pity, Carl of amused wonder, and all of them of curiosity. "'Now come out to the graveyard and tell us about yourself,' ordered Faith, when Mary's appetite showed signs of failing her. Mary was now nothing loath. Food had restored her natural vivacity and unloosed her by no means reluctant tongue. "'You won't tell your pa or anybody if I tell you,' she stipulated when she was enthroned on Mr. Pollock's tombstone. Opposite her the man's children lined up on another. Here was spice and mystery and adventure. Something had happened. "'No, we won't.' "'Cross your hearts. Cross our hearts. Well, I've run away. I was living with Mrs. Wiley over harbour. Do you know Mrs. Wiley?' No. Well, you don't want to know her. She's an awful woman. My, how I hate her. She worked me to death and wouldn't give me half enough to eat. And she used to larrup me most every day. Look a here." Mary rolled up her ragged sleeves and held up her scrawny arms and thin hands, chapped almost to rawness. They were black with bruises. The man's children shivered. Faith flushed crimson with indignation. Una's blue eyes filled with tears. She licked me Wednesday night with a stick said Mary indifferently. It was cause I let the cow kick over a pail of milk. How'd I know the darn old cow was going to kick?" A not unpleasant thrill ran over her listeners. They would never dream of using such dubious words, but it was rather titillating to hear someone else use them—and a girl at that. Certainly this Mary Vance was an interesting creature. "'I don't blame you for running away,' said Faith. "'Oh, I didn't run away cause she licked me. A lickin' was all in the day's work with me. I was darn well used to it. Nope. I'd meant to run away for a week cause I'd found out that Mrs. Wiley was going to rent her farm and go to Lowbridge to live and give me to a cousin of hers up Charlottetown way. I wasn't going to stand for that. She was a worse sort than Mrs. Wiley even. Mrs. Wiley lent me to her for a month last summer and I'd rather live with the devil himself. Sensation number two. But Una looked doubtful. So I made up my mind I'd beat it. I had seventy cents saved up that Mrs. John Crawford give me in the spring for planting potatoes for her. Mrs. Wiley didn't know about it. She was away visiting her cousin when I planted them. I thought I'd sneak up here to the Glen and buy a ticket to Charlottetown and try to get work there. I'm a hustler, let me tell you. There ain't a lazy bone in my body. So I lit out Thursday morning for Mrs. Wiley was up and walked to the Glen—six miles. And when I got to the station I found I'd lost my money. Don't know how, don't know where. Anyhow, it was gone. I didn't know what to do. 
If I went back to old Lady Wiley she'd take the hide off me. So I went and hid in that old barn." "'And what will you do now?' asked Jerry. "'Dunno. I suppose I'll have to go back and take my medicine. Now that I got some grub in my stomach I guess I can stand it.' But there was fear behind the bravado in Mary's eyes. Una suddenly slipped from the one tombstone to the other and put her arm about Mary. "'Don't go back. Just stay here with us.' "'Oh, Mrs. Wiley'll hunt me up,' said Mary. "'It's likely she's on my trail before this. I might stay here till she finds me, I suppose, if your folks don't mind. I was a darn fool ever to think of skipping out. She'd run a weasel to earth. But I was so miserable.' Mary's voice quivered, but she was ashamed of showing her weakness. "'I ain't had the life of a dog for these four years,' she explained defiantly. "'You've been four years with Mrs. Wiley?' "'Yep. She took me out of the asylum over in Hopetown when I was eight. "'That's the same place Mrs. Blythe came from,' exclaimed Faith. "'I was two years in the asylum. I was put there when I was six. My ma'd hung herself and my pied cut his throat.' "'Holy cats! Why?' said Jerry. "'Booze,' said Mary laconically. "'And you've no relations?' Not a darn one that I know of. Must have had some once, though. I was called after half a dozen of them. My full name is Mary Martha Lucilla Moore Ball Vance. Can you beat that? My grandfather was a rich man. I'll bet he was richer than your grandfather. But Pa drunk it all up and Ma, she did her part. They used to beat me, too. Laws, I've been licked so much I kind of like it." Mary tossed her head. She divined that the man's children were pitying her for her many stripes, and she did not want pity. She wanted to be envied. She looked gaily about her. Her strange eyes, now that the dullness of famine was removed from them, were brilliant. She would show these youngsters what a personage she was. "'I've been sick an awful lot,' she said proudly. "'There's not many kids could have come through what I have. I've had scarlet fever and measles and ursipellas and mumps and whooping cough and pneumonia.' "'Were you ever fatally sick?' asked Una. "'I don't know,' said Mary doubtfully. "'Of course she wasn't,' scoffed Jerry. "'If you're fatally sick you die.' "'Oh, well, I never died exactly,' said Mary. "'But I came blame near it once. They thought I was dead, and they were getting ready to lay me out when I up and come to.' "'What was it like to be half-dead?' asked Jerry curiously. "'Like nothing. I didn't know it for days afterwards. It was when I had the pneumonia. Mrs. Wiley wouldn't have the doctor. She said she wasn't going to know such expense for a home-girl.' Old Aunt Christina McAllister nursed me with poultices. She brung me round. But sometimes I wish I'd just died the other half and done with it. I'd have been better off." "'If you went to heaven I suppose you would,' said Faith rather doubtfully. "'Well, what other place is there to go?' demanded Mary in a puzzled voice. "'There's hell, you know,' said Una, dropping her voice and hugging Mary to lessen the awfulness of the suggestion. "'Hell? What's that?' "'Why, it's where the devil lives,' said Jerry. You've heard of him. You spoke about him." "'Oh, yes, but I didn't know he lived anywhere. I thought he just roamed around. Mr. Wiley used to mention hell when he was alive. He was always telling folks to go there. I thought it was some place over in New Brunswick where he'd come from." "'Hell is an awful place,' said Faith, with the dramatic enjoyment that is born of telling dreadful things. Bad people go there when they die and burn in fire for ever and ever and ever." "'Who told you that?' demanded Mary incredulously. It's in the Bible. And Mr. Isaac Crothers at Maywater told us, too, in Sunday school. He was an elder and a pillar in the church and knew all about it. But you needn't worry. If you're good you'll go to heaven, and if you're bad I guess you'd rather go to hell." "'I wouldn't,' said Mary positively. No matter how bad I was I wouldn't want to be burned and burned. 
I know what it's like. I picked up a red-hot poker once by accident. What must you do to be good? You must go to church and Sunday school and read your Bible and pray every night and give to missions," said Una. It sounds like a large order," said Mary. Anything else? You must ask God to forgive the sins you've committed. But I've never com committed any," said Mary. What's a sin, anyway? Oh, Mary, you must have. Everybody does. Did you never tell a lie? Heaps of em," said Mary. That's a dreadful sin," said Una solemnly. Do you mean to tell me, demanded Mary, that I'd be sent to hell for telling a lie now and then? Why, I had to. Mr. Wiley would have broken every bone in my body one time if I hadn't told him a lie. Lies have saved me many a whack, I can tell you." Una sighed. Here were too many difficulties for her to solve. She shuddered as she thought of being cruelly whipped. Very likely she would have lied, too. She squeezed Mary's little calloused hand. "'Is that the only dress you've got?' asked Faith, whose joyous nature refused to dwell on disagreeable subjects. "'I just put on this dress because it was no good,' cried Mary, flushing. "'Mrs. Wiley'd bought my clothes and I wasn't going to be beholden to her for anything. And I'm honest. If I was going to run away I wasn't going to take what belonged to her that was worth anything. When I grow up I'm going to have a blue satin dress. Your own clothes don't look so stylish. I thought minister's children were always dressed up.' It was plain that Mary had a temper and was sensitive on some points. But there was a queer, wild charm about her which captivated them all. She was taken to Rainbow Valley that afternoon and introduced to the Blythes as a friend of ours from Over Harbor who was visiting us. The Blythes accepted her unquestioningly, perhaps because she was fairly respectable now. After dinner, through which Aunt Martha had mumbled and Mr. Meredith had been in a state of semi-unconsciousness while brooding his Sunday sermon, Faith had prevailed on Mary to put on one of her dresses, as well as certain other articles of clothing. With her hair neatly braided, Mary passed muster tolerably well. She was an acceptable playmate, for she knew several new and exciting games, and her conversation lacked not spice. In fact, some of her expressions made Nan and Di look at her rather askance. They were not quite sure what their mother would have thought of her, but they knew quite well what Susan would. However, she was a visitor at the manse, so she must be all right. When bedtime came there was the problem of where Mary should sleep. We can't put her in the spare room, you know," said Faith perplexedly to Una. I haven't got anything in my head," cried Mary in an injured tone. Oh, I didn't mean that," protested Faith. The spare room is all torn up. The mice have gnawed a big hole in the feather tick and made a nest in it. We never found out till Aunt Martha put the Reverend Mr. Fisher from Charlottetown there to sleep last week. He soon found it out. Then Father had to give him his bed and sleep on the study lounge. Aunt Martha hasn't had time to fix the spare room bed up yet, so she says. So nobody can sleep there, no matter how clean their heads are. And our room is so small and the bed's so small you can't sleep with us. I can go back to the hay in the old barn for the night if you'll lend me a quilt," said Mary philosophically. It was kind of chilly last night, but except for that I've had worse beds. Oh, no, no, you mustn't do that," said Una. I've thought of a plan, Faith. You know that little trestle bed in the garret room with the old mattress on it that the last minister left there? Let's take up the spare room bedclothes and make Mary a bed there. You won't mind sleeping in the garret, will you, Mary? It's just above our room. Any place'll do me. Laws, I never had a decent place to sleep in my life. I slept in the loft over the kitchen at Mrs. Wiley's. The roof leaked rain in the summer and the snow drove in in winter. My bed was a straw tick on the floor. You won't find me a mite huffy about where I sleep." The manse garret was a long, low, shadowy place, with one gable end partitioned off. 
Here a bed was made up for Mary, of the dainty hemstitched sheets and embroidered spread which Cecilia Meredith had once so proudly made for her spare room, and which still survived Aunt Martha's uncertain washings. The good nights were said, and silence fell over the manse. Una was just falling asleep when she heard a sound in the room just above that made her sit up suddenly. "'Listen, Faith. Mary's crying,' she whispered. Faith replied not, being already asleep. Una slipped out of bed and made her way in her little white gown down the hall and up the garret stairs. The creaking floor gave ample notice of her coming, and when she reached the corner room all was moonlit silence and the trestle bed showed only a hump in the middle. "'Mary?' whispered Una. There was no response. Una crept close to the bed and pulled at the spread. "'Mary, I know you're crying. I heard you. Are you lonesome?' Mary suddenly appeared to view but said nothing. "'Let me in beside you. I'm cold,' said Una, shivering in the chilly air, for the little garret window was open and the keen breath of the north shore at night blew in. Mary moved over and Una snuggled down beside her. "'Now you won't be lonesome. We shouldn't have left you here alone the first night." "'I wasn't lonesome,' sniffed Mary. "'What were you crying for, then?' "'Oh, I just got to thinking of things when I was here alone. I thought of having to go back to Mrs. Wiley and of being licked for running away and—and—and of going to hell for telling lies. It all worried me something scandalous.' "'Oh, Mary,' said poor Una in distress, "'I don't believe God will send you to hell for telling lies when you didn't know it was wrong. He couldn't. Why, he's kind and good. Of course you mustn't tell any more now that you know it's wrong." "'If I can't tell lies, what's to become of me?' said Mary with a sob. "'You don't understand. You don't know anything about it. You've got a home and a kind father—though it does seem to me that he isn't more than about half there. But anyway, he doesn't lick you, and you get enough to eat, such as it is, though that old aunt of yours doesn't know anything about cooking. Why, this is the first day I ever remember feeling as if I'd had enough to eat. I've been knocked about all my life, except for the two years I was at the asylum. They didn't lick me there, and it wasn't too bad, though the matron was cross. She always looked ready to bite the head off a nail. But Mrs. Wiley's a holy terror—that's what she is—and I'm just scared stiff when I think of going back to her." "'Perhaps you won't have to. Perhaps we'll be able to think of a way out. Let's both ask God to keep you from having to go back to Mrs. Wiley. You say your prayers, don't you, Mary?' "'Oh, yes. I always go over an old rhyme before I get into bed," said Mary indifferently. I never thought of asking for anything in particular, though. Nobody in this world ever bothered themselves about me, so I didn't suppose God would. He might take more trouble for you, seeing you're a minister's daughter." "'He'd take every bit as much trouble for you, Mary, I'm sure,' said Una. It doesn't matter whose child you are. You just ask him, and I will, too." "'All right,' agreed Mary. It won't do any harm if it doesn't do much good. If you knew Mrs. Wiley as well as I do, you wouldn't think God would want to meddle with her. Anyhow, I won't cry any more about it. This is a big sight better'n last night down in that old barn with the mice running about. Look at the four winds light. Ain't it pretty?" This is the only window we can see it from, said Una. I love to watch it. Do you? So do I. I could see it from the Wiley loft, and it was the only comfort I had. When I was all sore from being licked I'd watch it and forget about the places that hurt. I'd think of the ships sailing away and away from it and wish I was on one of them, sailing far away, too—away from everything. On winter nights when it didn't shine I just felt real lonesome. Say, Una, what makes all you folks so kind to me when I'm just a stranger?" "'Because it's right to be. The Bible tells us to be kind to everybody." "'Does it? 
Well, I guess most folks just don't mind it much then. I never remember anyone being kind to me before. True as you live, I don't. Say, Una, ain't them shadows on the walls pretty? They look just like a flock of little dancing birds. And say, Una, I like all you folks and them Blythe boys and die, but I don't like that Nan. She's a proud one. Oh, no, Mary, she isn't a bit proud, said Una eagerly. Not a single bit. Don't tell me. Anyone that holds her head like that is proud. I don't like her. We all like her very much. Oh, I suppose you like her better than me, said Mary jealously. Do you? Why, Mary, we've known her for weeks and we've only known you a few hours, stammered Una. So you do like her better, then, said Mary in a rage. All right. Like her all you want to. I don't care. I can get along without you. She flung herself over against the wall of the garret with a slam. Oh, Mary, said Una, pushing a tender arm over Mary's uncompromising back. Don't talk like that. I do like you ever so much. And you make me feel so bad. No answer. Presently Una gave a sob. Instantly Mary squirmed around again and engulfed Una in a bear's hug. Hush up, she ordered. Don't go crying over what I said. I was as mean as the devil to talk that way. I ought to be skinned alive. And you all so good to me. I should think you would like anyone better than me. I deserve every lickin' I ever got. Hush now. If you cry any more I'll go and walk right down to the harbour in this nightdress and drown myself." This terrible threat made Una choke back her sobs. Her tears were wiped away by Mary with the lace frill of the spare-room pillow, and forgiver and forgiven cuddled down together again, harmony restored, to watch the shadows of the vine-leaves on the moonlit wall until they fell asleep. And in the study below Reverend John Meredith walked the floor with rapt face and shining eyes, thinking out his message of the morrow, and knew not that under his own roof there was a little forlorn soul stumbling in darkness and ignorance, beset by terror and compassed about with difficulties too great for it to grapple in its unequal struggle with a big indifferent world. End of chapter 5 Chapter Six of Rainbow Valley by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Karen Savage. Chapter Six. Mary stays at the manse. The manse children took Mary Vance to church with them the next day. At first, Mary objected to the idea. "Didn't you go to church over harbor?" asked Una. "You bet. Mrs. Wiley never troubled church much, but I went every Sunday I could get off. I was mighty thankful to go someplace I could sit down for a spell." but I can't go to church in this old ragged dress." This difficulty was removed by Faith offering the loan of her second-best dress. "'It's faded a little, and two of the buttons are off, but I guess it'll do.' "'I'll sew the buttons on in a jiffy,' said Mary. "'Not on Sunday,' said Una, shocked. "'Sure. The better the day, the better the deed. You just give me a needle and thread and look the other way if you're squeamish.' Faith's school boots and an old black velvet cap that had once been Cecilia Meredith's completed Mary's costume, and to church she went. Her behavior was quite conventional, and though some wondered who the shabby little girl with the man's children was, she did not attract much attention. She listened to the sermon with outward decorum and joined lustily in the singing. She had, it appeared, a clear, strong voice and a good ear. "'His blood can make the violets clean,' caroled Mary blithely. Mrs. Jimmy Milgrave, whose pew was just in front of the manse pew, turned suddenly and looked the child over from top to toe. Mary, in a mere superfluity of naughtiness, stuck her tongue out at Mrs. Milgrave, much to Una's horror. 
I couldn't help it, she declared after church. What did she want to stare at me like that for? Such manners. I'm glad I stuck my tongue out at her. I wish I'd stuck it further out. Say, I saw Rob McAllister from over harbor there. Wonder if he'll tell Mrs. Wiley on me." No Mrs. Wiley appeared, however, and in a few days the children forgot to look for her. Mary was apparently a fixture at the manse, but she refused to go to school with the others. "'Nope. I've finished my education,' she said when Faith urged her to go. I went to school four winters since I came to Mrs. Wiley's, and I've had all I want of that. I'm sick and tired of being everlastingly jawed at because I didn't get my home lessons done. I'd no time to do home lessons." "'Our teacher won't jaw you. He's awfully nice,' said Faith. "'Well, I ain't going. I can read and write and cipher up to fractions. That's all I want. You fellows go, and I'll stay home. You needn't be scared I'll steal anything. I swear I'm honest.' Mary employed herself while the others were at school in cleaning up the manse. In a few days it was a different place. Floors were swept, furniture dusted, everything straightened out. She mended the spare-room bed-tick, she sewed on missing buttons, she patched clothes neatly, she even invaded the study with broom and dustpan and ordered Mr. Meredith out while she put it to rights. But there was one department with which Aunt Martha refused to let her interfere. Aunt Martha might be deaf and half-blind and very childish, but she was resolved to keep the commissariat in her own hands, in spite of all Mary's wiles and stratagems. "'I can tell you if old Martha'd let me cook you'd have some decent meals,' she told the man's children indignantly. "'There'd be no more ditto, and no more lumpy porridge and blue milk either. What does she do with all the cream?' "'She gives it to the cat. He's hers, you know,' said Faith. "'I'd like to cat her,' exclaimed Mary bitterly. "'I've no use for cats anyhow. They belong to the old Nick. You can tell that by their eyes.' "'Well, if old Martha won't, she won't, I suppose. But it gets on my nerves to see good victuals spoiled.' When school came out they always went to Rainbow Valley. Mary refused to play in the graveyard. She declared she was afraid of ghosts. "'There's no such thing as ghosts,' declared Jem Blythe. "'Oh, ain't there!' Did you ever see any? Hundreds of them," said Mary promptly. "'What are they like?' said Carl. "'Awful looking. Dressed all in white with skeleton hands and heads,' said Mary. "'What did you do?' asked Una. "'Run like the devil,' said Mary. Then she caught Walter's eyes and blushed. Mary was a good deal in awe of Walter. She declared to the manse girls that his eyes made her nervous. "'I think of all the lies I've ever told when I look into them,' she said, and I wish I hadn't. Jem was Mary's favorite. When he took her to the attic at Ingleside and showed her the museum of curios that Captain Jim Boyd had bequeathed to him, she was immediately pleased and flattered. She also won Carl's heart entirely by her interest in his beetles and ants. It could not be denied that Mary got on rather better with the boys than with the girls. She quarrelled bitterly with Nan Blythe the second day. "'Your mother's a witch,' she told Nan scornfully. "'Red-haired women are always witches.' Then she and Faith fell out about the rooster. Mary said its tail was too short. Faith angrily retorted that she guessed God knew what length to make a rooster's tail. They did not speak for a day over this. Mary treated Una's hairless, one-eyed doll with consideration, but when Una showed her other prized treasure—a picture of an angel carrying a baby, presumably to heaven—Mary declared that it looked too much like a ghost for her. Una crept away to her room and cried over this. But Mary hunted her out, hugged her repentantly, and implored forgiveness. 
No one could keep up a quarrel long with Mary—not even Nan, who was rather prone to hold grudges and never quite forgave the insult to her mother. Mary was jolly. She could and did tell the most thrilling ghost stories. Rainbow Valley seances were undeniably more exciting after Mary came. She learned to play on the Jew's harp and soon eclipsed Jerry. "'Never struck anything yet I couldn't do if I put my mind to it,' she declared. Mary seldom lost a chance of tooting her own horn. She taught them how to make blow-bags out of the thick leaves of the live forever that flourished in the old bailey garden. She initiated them into the toothsome qualities of the sours that grew in the niches of the graveyard dyke, and she could make the most wonderful shadow pictures on the walls with her long, flexible fingers. And when they all went picking gum in Rainbow Valley, Mary always got the biggest chew and bragged about it. There were times when they hated her and times when they loved her, but at all times they found her interesting. So they submitted quite meekly to her bossing, and by the end of a fortnight had come to feel that she must always have been with them. "'It's the queerest thing that Mrs. Wiley hain't been after me,' said Mary. "'I can't understand it.' "'Maybe she isn't going to bother about you at all,' said Una. "'Then you can just go on staying here.' "'This house ain't hardly big enough for me and old Martha,' said Mary darkly. "'It's a very fine thing to have enough to eat. I've often wondered what it would be like. But I'm particular about my cooking. And Mrs. Wiley'll be here yet. She's got a rod in pickle for me all right. I don't think about it so much in daytime, but, say, girls, up there in that garret at night I get to thinking and thinking of it till I almost just wish she'd come and have it over with. I don't know as one real good whipping would be much worse than all the dozen I've lived through in my mind ever since I run away. Were any of you ever licked?" "'No, of course not,' said Faith indignantly. Father would never do such a thing." "'You don't know you're alive,' said Mary, with a sigh half of envy, half of superiority. "'You don't know what I've come through. And I suppose the Blythes were never licked either.' "'No, I guess not. But I think they were sometimes spanked when they were small." "'A spanking doesn't amount to anything,' said Mary contemptuously. "'If my folks had just spanked me I'd have thought they were petting me. Well, it ain't a fair world. I wouldn't mind taking my share of wallopins, but I've had a darn sight too many." "'It isn't right to say that word, Mary,' said Una reproachfully. You promised me you wouldn't say it." "'Go away,' responded Mary. If you knew some of the words I could say if I liked, you wouldn't make such a fuss over darn. And you know very well I hain't ever told any lies since I come here." "'What about all those ghosts you said you saw?' asked Faith. Mary blushed. "'That was different,' she said defiantly. "'I knew you wouldn't believe them yarns and I didn't intend you to. And I really did see something queer one night when I was passing the over-harbour graveyard, true as you live. I don't know whether twas a ghost or Sandy Crawford's old white nag but it looked blamed queer, and I tell you I scooted at the rate of no man's business." End of chapter 6 Chapter 7 of Rainbow Valley by Lucy Maud Montgomery This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Karen Savage Chapter 7 A Fishy Episode Rilla Blythe walked proudly, and perhaps a little primly, through the main street of the Glen and up the Manse Hill, carefully carrying a small basketful of early strawberries, which Susan had coaxed into lusciousness in one of the sunny nooks of Ingleside. Susan had charged Rilla to give the basket to nobody except Aunt Martha or Mr. Meredith, and Rilla, very proud of being entrusted with such an errand, was resolved to carry out her instructions to the letter. 
Susan had dressed her daintily in a white, starched, and embroidered dress with sash of blue and beaded slippers. Her long, ruddy curls were sleek and round, and Susan had let her put on her best hat, out of compliment to the manse. It was a somewhat elaborate affair, wherein Susan's taste had had more to say than Anne's, and Rilla's small soul gloried in its splendours of silk and lace and flowers. She was very conscious of her hat, and I am afraid she strutted up the manse hill. The strut, or the hat, or both, got on the nerves of Mary Vance, who was swinging on the lawn gate. Mary's temper was somewhat ruffled just then into the bargain. Aunt Martha had refused to let her peel the potatoes and had ordered her out of the kitchen. "'Yeah, you'll bring the potatoes to the kitchen with strips of skin hanging to them and half-boiled as usual. My, but it'll be nice to go to your funeral,' shrieked Mary. She went out of the kitchen, giving the door such a bang that even Aunt Martha heard it, and Mr. Meredith in his study felt the vibration and thought absently that there must have been a slight earthquake shock. Then he went on with his sermon. Mary slipped from the gate and confronted the spick-and-span damsel of Ingleside. "'What you got there?' she demanded, trying to take the basket. Rilla resisted. "'It's for Mr. Meredith,' she lisped. "'Give it to me. I'll give it to him,' said Mary. "'No. Susan said that I wasn't to give it to anybody but Mr. Meredith or Aunt Martha,' insisted Rilla. Mary eyed her sourly. "'You think you're something, don't you, all dressed up like a doll? Look at me. My dress is all rags and I don't care. I'd rather be ragged than a doll baby. Go home and tell them to put you in a glass case. Look at me, look at me, look at me!" Mary executed a wild dance around the dismayed and bewildered Rilla, flirting her ragged skirt and vociferating, "'Look at me, look at me!' until poor Rilla was dizzy. But as the latter tried to edge away towards the gate, Mary pounced on her again. "'You give me that basket,' she ordered with a grimace. Mary was past mistress of the art of making faces. She could give her countenance a most grotesque and unearthly appearance out of which her strange, brilliant white eyes gleamed with weird effect. "'I won't!' gasped Rilla, frightened but staunch. "'You let me go, Mary Vance!' Mary let go for a minute and looked around her. Just inside the gate was a small flake on which half a dozen large codfish were drying. One of Mr. Meredith's parishioners had presented him with these one day, perhaps in lieu of the subscription he was supposed to pay to the stipend and never did. Mr. Meredith had thanked him and then forgotten all about the fish, which would have promptly spoiled had not the indefatigable Mary prepared them for drying and rigged up the flake herself on which to dry them. Mary had a diabolical inspiration. She flew to the flake, seized the largest fish there, a huge, flat thing nearly as big as herself. With a whoop she swooped down on the terrified Rilla, brandishing her weird missile. Rilla's courage gave way. To be lambasted with a dried codfish was such an unheard-of thing that Rilla could not face it. With a shriek she dropped her basket and fled. The beautiful berries which Susan had so tenderly selected for the minister rolled in a rosy torrent over the dusty road and were trodden on by the flying feet of pursuer and pursued. The basket and contents were no longer in Mary's mind. She thought only of the delight of giving Rilla Blythe the scare of her life. She would teach her to come giving herself airs because of her fine clothes. Rilla flew down the hill and along the street. Terror lent wings to her feet, and she just managed to keep ahead of Mary, who was somewhat hampered by her own laughter, but who had breath enough to give occasional blood-curdling whoops as she ran, flourishing her codfish in the air. 
Through the Glen Street they swept, while everybody ran to the windows and gates to see them. Mary felt she was making a tremendous sensation and enjoyed it. Rilla, blind with terror and spent of breath, felt that she could run no longer. In another instant that terrible girl would be on her with the codfish. At this point the poor mite stumbled and fell into the mud puddle at the end of the street just as Miss Cornelia came out of Carter Flagg's store. Miss Cornelia took the whole situation in at a glance. So did Mary. The latter stopped short in her mad career and before Miss Cornelia could speak she had whirled around and was running up as fast as she had run down. Miss Cornelia's lips tightened ominously, but she knew it was no use to think of chasing her. So she picked up poor, sobbing, disheveled Rilla instead and took her home. Rilla was heartbroken. Her dress and slippers and hat were ruined and her six-year-old pride had received terrible bruises. Susan, white with indignation, heard Miss Cornelia's story of Mary Vance's exploit. "'Oh, the hussy! Oh, the little hussy!' she said as she carried Rilla away for purification and comfort. "'This thing has gone on far enough, Anne dearie,' said Miss Cornelia resolutely. "'Something must be done. Who is this creature who is staying at the manse and where does she come from?' I understood she was a little girl from Over Harbor who was visiting at the manse," answered Anne, who saw the comical side of the codfish chase and secretly thought Rilla was rather vain and needed a lesson or two. I know all the Over Harbor families who come to our church and that imp doesn't belong to any of them," retorted Miss Cornelia. She is almost in rags and when she goes to church she wears Faith Meredith's old clothes. There's some mystery here and I'm going to investigate it since it seems nobody else will. I believe she was at the bottom of their goings-on in Warren Mead's spruce-bush the other day. Did you hear of their frightening his mother into a fit?" No. I knew Gilbert had been called to see her, but I did not hear what the trouble was. Well, you know she has a weak heart. And one day last week, when she was all alone on the veranda, she heard the most awful shrieks of murder and help coming from the bush—positively frightful sounds, Anne dearie. Her heart gave out at once. Warren heard them himself at the barn and went straight to the bush to investigate, and there he found all the manse children sitting on a fallen tree and screaming murder at the top of their lungs. They told him they were only in fun and didn't think anyone could hear them. They were just playing Indian ambush. Warren went back to the house and found his poor mother unconscious on the veranda. Susan, who had returned, sniffed contemptuously. I think she was very far from being unconscious, Mrs. Marshall Elliott, and that you may tie to. I have been hearing of Amelia Warren's weak heart for forty years. She had it when she was twenty. She enjoys making a fuss and having the doctor, and any excuse will do." "'I don't think Gilbert thought her attack very serious,' said Anne. "'Oh, that very well may be,' said Miss Cornelia. But the matter has made an awful lot of talk, and the Meads being Methodists makes it that much worse. What is going to become of those children? Sometimes I can't sleep at nights for thinking about them, Anne dearie. I really do question if they get enough to eat, even, for their father is so lost in dreams that he doesn't often remember he has a stomach, and that lazy old woman doesn't bother cooking what she ought. They are just running wild, and now that school is closing they'll be worse than ever." "'They do have jolly times,' said Anne, laughing over the recollections of some Rainbow Valley happenings that had come to her ears. "'And they are all brave and frank and loyal and truthful. That's a true word, Anne dearie, and when you come to think of all the trouble in the church those two tattling, deceitful youngsters of the last ministers made, I'm inclined to overlook a good deal in the Merediths." "'When all is said and done, Mrs. Dr. dear, they are very nice children,' said Susan. 
They have got plenty of original sin in them, and that I will admit. But maybe it is just as well, for if they had not they might spoil from over-sweetness. Only I do think it is not proper for them to play in a graveyard, and that I will maintain." "'But they really play quite quietly there,' excused Anne. "'They don't run and yell as they do elsewhere. Such howls as drift up here from Rainbow Valley sometimes, though I fancy my own small fry bear a valiant part in them. They had a sham battle there last night and had to roar themselves because they had no artillery to do it, so Jem says. Jem is passing through the stage where all boys hanker to be soldiers." "'Well, thank goodness he'll never be a soldier,' said Miss Cornelia. I never approved of our boys going to that South African fracas. But it's over, and not likely anything of the kind will ever happen again. I think the world is getting more sensible. As for the Merediths, I've said many a time, and I say it again, if Mr. Meredith had a wife all would be well." "'He called twice at the Kirks last week, so I am told,' said Susan. "'Well,' said Miss Cornelia thoughtfully, "'as a rule I don't approve of a minister marrying in his congregation. It generally spoils him. But in this case it would do no harm, for everyone likes Elizabeth Kirk, and nobody else is hankering for the job of stepmothering those youngsters. Even the Hill girls balk at that. They haven't been found laying traps for Mr. Meredith. Elizabeth would make him a good wife if he only thought so. But the trouble is, she really is homely, and Anne, dearie, Mr. Meredith, abstracted as he is, has an eye for a good-looking woman, man-like. He isn't so otherworldly when it comes to that, believe me. Elizabeth Kirk is a very nice person, but they do say that people have nearly frozen to death in her mother's spare-room bed before now, Mrs. Dr. dear," said Susan darkly. If I felt that I had any right to express an opinion concerning such a solemn matter as a minister's marriage, I would say that I think Elizabeth's cousin Sarah over harbour would make Mr. Meredith a better wife." "'Why, Sarah Kirk is a Methodist,' said Miss Cornelia, much as if Susan had suggested a Hottentot as a man's bride. She would likely turn Presbyterian if she married Mr. Meredith," retorted Susan. Miss Cornelia shook her head. Evidently with her it was once a Methodist, always a Methodist. "'Sarah Kirk is entirely out of the question,' she said positively. And so is Emmeline Drew, though the Drews are all trying to make the match. They are literally throwing poor Emmeline at his head. And he hasn't the least idea of it." "'Emmeline Drew has no gumption, I must allow,' said Susan. She is the kind of woman, Mrs. Dr. dear, who would put a hot water-bottle in your bed on a dog-night, and then have her feelings hurt because you were not grateful. And her mother was a very poor housekeeper. Did you ever hear the story of her dishcloth? She lost her dishcloth one day, but the next day she found it—oh, yes, Mrs. Dr. dear, she found it—in the goose at the dinner-table, mixed up with the stuffing. Do you think a woman like that would do for a minister's mother-in-law? I do not but no doubt I would be better employed in mending little Jem's trousers than in talking gossip about my neighbours. He tore them something scandalous last night in Rainbow Valley." "'Where is Walter?' asked Anne. "'He is up to no good, I fear, Mrs. Dr. dear. He is in the attic writing something in an exercise book. And he has not done as well in arithmetic this term as he should, so the teacher tells me. Too well I know the reason why. He has been writing silly rhymes when he should have been doing his sums. I am afraid that boy is going to be a poet, Mrs. Dr. dear." He is a poet now, Susan. Well, you take it real calm, Mrs. Dr. dear. I suppose it is the best way when a person has the strength. I had an uncle who began by being a poet and ended up by being a tramp. Our family were dreadfully ashamed of him. You don't seem to think very highly of poets, Susan," said Anne, laughing. Who does, Mrs. Dr. dear? 
asked Susan in genuine astonishment. "'What about Milton and Shakespeare and the poets of the Bible?' "'They tell me Milton could not get along with his wife, and Shakespeare was no more than respectable by times. As for the Bible, of course, things were different in those sacred days. Although I never had a high opinion of King David, say what you will. I never knew any good to come of writing poetry, and I hope and pray that blessed boy will outgrow the tendency. If he does not, we must see what emulsion of cod-liver oil will do." End of chapter 7 Chapter 8 of Rainbow Valley by Lucy Maud Montgomery This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Karen Savage. Chapter 8 Miss Cornelia Intervenes Miss Cornelia descended upon the manse the next day and cross-questioned Mary, who, being a young person of considerable discernment and astuteness, told her story simply and truthfully, with an entire absence of complaint or bravado. Miss Cornelia was more favourably impressed than she had expected to be, but deemed it her duty to be severe. "'Do you think,' she said sternly, "'that you showed your gratitude to this family, who have been far too kind to you, by insulting and chasing one of their little friends as you did yesterday?' "'Say, it was rotten mean of me,' admitted Mary easily. "'I don't know what possessed me. That old codfish seemed to come in so blamed handy. But I was awful sorry. I cried last night after I went to bed about it. Honest I did. You ask Una if I didn't. I wouldn't tell her what for, cause I was ashamed of it, and then she cried too because she was afraid someone had hurt my feelings. Laws, I ain't got no feelings to hurt worth speaking of. What worries me is why Mrs. Wiley hain't been hunting for me. It ain't like her." Miss Cornelia herself thought it rather peculiar, but she merely admonished Mary sharply not to take any further liberties with the minister's codfish, and went to report progress at Ingleside. "'If the child's story is true, the matter ought to be looked into,' she said. I know something about that wily woman, believe me. Marshall used to be well acquainted with her when he lived over harbour. I heard him say something last summer about her and a home-child she had—likely this very merry creature. He said someone told him she was working the child to death and not half-feeding and clothing it. You know, Anne dearie, it has always been my habit neither to make nor meddle with those over-harbour folks. But I shall send Marshall over to-morrow to find out the rights of this if he can and then I'll speak to the minister. Mind you, Anne dearie, the Merediths found this girl literally starving in James Taylor's old hay-barn. She had been there all night, cold and hungry and alone, and us sleeping warm in our beds after our good suppers." "'That poor little thing,' said Anne, picturing one of her own dear babies, cold and hungry and alone in such circumstances. "'If she has been ill-used, Miss Cornelia, she mustn't be taken back to such a place. I was an orphan once in a very similar situation." "'We'll have to consult the Hopetown Asylum folks,' said Miss Cornelia. "'Anyway, she can't be left at the manse. Dear knows what those poor children might learn from her. I understand that she has been known to swear. But just think of her being there two whole weeks and Mr. Meredith never waking up to it. What business has a man like that to have a family? Why, Anne, dearie, he ought to be a monk.' Two evenings later Miss Cornelia was back at Ingleside. "'It's the most amazing thing,' she said. Mrs. Wiley was found dead in her bed the very morning after this merry creature ran away. She has had a bad heart for years, and the doctor had warned her it might happen at any time. She had sent away her hired man, and there was nobody in the house. Some neighbours found her the next day. They missed the child, it seems, but supposed Mrs. Wiley had sent her to her cousin near Charlottetown, as she had said she was going to do. The cousin didn't come to the funeral, and so nobody ever knew that Mary wasn't with her. 
The people Marshall talked to told him some things about the way Mrs. Wiley used this Mary that made his blood boil, so he declares. You know, it puts Marshall in a regular fury to hear of a child being ill-used. They said she whipped her mercilessly for every little fault or mistake. Some folks talked of writing to the asylum authorities, but everybody's business is nobody's business, and it was never done." "'I am sorry that wily person is dead,' said Susan fiercely. "'I should like to go over-harbour and give her a piece of my mind—starving and beating a child, Mrs. Dr. dear. As you know, I hold with lawful spanking, but I go no further. And what is to become of this poor child now, Mrs. Marshall Elliot?' "'I suppose she must be sent back to Hopetown,' said Miss Cornelia. I think every one hereabouts who wants a home child has one. I'll see Mr. Meredith to-morrow and tell him my opinion of the whole affair." "'And no doubt she will, Mrs. Dr. dear,' said Susan, after Miss Cornelia had gone. She would stick at nothing—not even at shingling the church spire if she took it into her head. But I cannot understand how even Cornelia Bryant can talk to a minister as she does. You would think he was just any common person." When Miss Cornelia had gone, Nan Blythe uncurled herself from the hammock where she had been studying her lessons and slipped away to Rainbow Valley. The others were already there. Jem and Jerry were playing quoits with old horseshoes borrowed from the Glen blacksmith. Carl was stalking ants on a sunny hillock. Walter, lying on his stomach among the fern, was reading aloud to Mary and Di and Faith and Una from a wonderful book of myths wherein were fascinating accounts of Prester John and the Wandering Jew divining rods and tailed men, of Shamir, the worm that split rocks and opened the way to golden treasure, of fortunate isles and swan maidens. It was a great shock to Walter to learn that William Tell and Gellert were myths also, and the story of Bishop Hatto was to keep him awake all that night. But best of all he loved the stories of the Pied Piper and the Saint Graal. He read them thrillingly, while the bells on the tree-lovers tingled in the summer wind and the coolness of the evening shadows crept across the valley. "'Say, ain't them interestin' lies,' said Mary admiringly when Walter had closed the book. "'They aren't lies,' said Di indignantly. "'You don't mean they're true?' asked Mary incredulously. "'No, not exactly. They're like those ghost stories of yours. They weren't true, but you didn't expect us to believe them, so they weren't lies." "'That yarn about the divining rod is no lie anyhow,' said Mary. Old Jake Crawford over harbour can work it. They send for him everywhere they want to dig a well. And I believe I know the wandering Jew." "'Oh, Mary,' said Una, awestruck. "'I do. True's you're alive. There was an old man at Mrs. Wiley's one day last fall. He looked old enough to be anything. She was asking him about cedar posts, if he thought they'd last well. And he said, Last well, they'll last a thousand years. I know, for I've tried em twice. Now if he was two thousand years old, who was he but your wandering Jew?" "'I don't believe the wandering Jew would associate with a person like Mrs. Wiley,' said Faith decidedly. "'I love the Pied Piper story,' said Di, and so does Mother. I always feel so sorry for the poor little lame boy who couldn't keep up with the others and got shut out of the mountain. He must have been so disappointed. I think all the rest of his life he'd be wondering what wonderful thing he had missed and wishing he could have got in with the others." "'But how glad his mother must have been,' said Una softly. I think she had been sorry all her life that he was lame. Perhaps she even used to cry about it. But she would never be sorry again, ever. She would be glad he was lame because that was why she hadn't lost him." "'Some day,' said Walter dreamily, looking afar into the sky. The Pied Piper will come over the hill up there and down Rainbow Valley, piping merrily and sweetly, and I will follow him. 
follow him down to the shore, down to the sea, away from you all. I don't think I'll want to go. Jem will want to go. It will be such an adventure. But I won't. Only I'll have to. The music will call and call and call me until I must follow." "'We'll all go!' cried Di, catching fire at the flame of Walter's fancy and half believing she could see the mocking, retreating figure of the mystic piper in the far, dim end of the valley. "'No. You'll sit here and wait,' said Walter, his great, splendid eyes full of strange glamour. "'You'll wait for us to come back. And we may not come, for we cannot come as long as the piper plays. He may pipe us around the world, and still you'll sit here and wait—and wait." "'Oh, dry up,' said Mary, shivering. "'Don't look like that, Walter Blythe. You give me the creeps. Do you want to set me bawling? I could just see that horrid old piper going away on, and you boys following him, and us girls sitting here waiting all alone. I don't know why it is. I never was one of the blubbering kind, but as soon as you start your spieling I always want to cry." Walter smiled in triumph. He liked to exercise this power of his over his companions, to play on their feelings, waken their fears, thrill their souls. It satisfied some dramatic instinct in him. But under his triumph was a queer little chill of some mysterious dread. The Pied Piper had seemed very real to him, as if the fluttering veil that hid the future had for a moment been blown aside in the starlit dusk of Rainbow Valley and some dim glimpse of coming years granted to him. Carl, coming up to their group with a report of the doings in Antland, brought them all back to the realm of facts. "'Ants are darned interesting!' exclaimed Mary, glad to escape the shadowy piper's thrall. Carl and me watched that bed in the graveyard all Saturday afternoon. I never thought there was so much in bugs. Say, but they're quarrelsome little cusses. Some of them like to start a fight without any reason, as far as we could see. And some of them are cowards. They got so scared they just doubled theirselves up into a ball and let the other fellows bang them they wouldn't put up a fight at all. Some of them are lazy and won't work. We watched them shirking. And there was one ant died of grief cause another ant got killed. Wouldn't work, wouldn't eat, just died. It did. Honest to God—oodness." A shocked silence prevailed. Everyone knew that Mary had not started out to say goodness. Faith and Di exchanged glances that would have done credit to Miss Cornelia herself. Walter and Carl looked uncomfortable, and Una's lip trembled. Mary squirmed uncomfortably. That slipped out for I thought. It did, honest to—I mean, true as you live, and I swallowed half of it. You folks over here are mighty squeamish, seems to me. Wish you could have heard the Wileys when they had a fight. Ladies don't say such things, said Faith, very primly for her. It isn't right, whispered Una. I ain't a lady, said Mary. What chance have I ever had of being a lady? But I won't say that again if I can help it. I promise you." "'Besides,' said Una, "'you can't expect God to answer your prayers if you take His name in vain, Mary.' "'I don't expect Him to answer him anyhow,' said Mary of little faith. "'I've been asking Him for a week to clear up this wily affair, and He hasn't done a thing. I'm going to give up.' At this juncture Nan arrived breathless. Oh, Mary, I've news for you. Mrs. Elliot has been over harbour and what do you think she found out? Mrs. Wiley is dead. She was found dead in bed the morning after you ran away. So you'll never have to go back to her." Dead? said Mary, stupefied. Then she shivered. Do you suppose my praying had anything to do with that? she cried imploringly to Una. If it had, I'll never pray again as long as I live. Why, she may come back and haunt me. 
"'No, no, Mary,' said Una comfortingly. "'It hadn't. Why, Mrs. Wiley died long before you ever began to pray about it at all.' "'That's so,' said Mary, recovering from her panic. "'But I tell you, it gave me a start. I wouldn't like to think I'd prayed anybody to death. I never thought of such a thing as her dying when I was praying. She didn't seem much like the dying kind. Did Mrs. Elliot say anything about me?" She said you would likely have to go back to the asylum. "'I thought as much,' said Mary drearily. "'And then they'll give me out again, likely to someone just like Mrs. Wiley. Well, I suppose I can stand it. I'm tough.' "'I'm going to pray that you won't have to go back,' whispered Una, as she and Mary walked home to the manse. "'You can do as you like,' said Mary decidedly. "'But I vow I won't. I'm good and scared of this praying business. See what's come of it? If Mrs. Wiley had died after I started praying, it would have been my doings." "'Oh, no, it wouldn't,' said Una. "'I wish I could explain things better. Father could, I know, if you'd talk to him, Mary.' "'Catch me! I don't know what to make of your father. That's the long and short of it. He goes by me and never sees me in broad daylight. I ain't proud, but I ain't a doormat, neither.' "'Oh, Mary, it's just Father's way. Most of the time he never sees us, either. He's thinking deeply, that's all. And I am going to pray that God will keep you in four winds, because I like you, Mary." "'All right. Only don't let me hear of any more people dying on account of it,' said Mary. "'I'd like to stay in four winds fine. I like it, and I like the harbour and the lighthouse, and you and the Blythes. You're the only friends I ever had, and I'd hate to leave you.'" End of chapter 8 Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.